Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Merrily We Go to Hell is over. I'd rather go merrily to hell with you than alone. I'm a little oh. drunk. Can you excuse me? I think everyone here is a little drunk, but I'll excuse you. A loose hands. What did you do with the ring? I ought to be shot. I lost it. Well, merrily we go to hell. Merrily you stop this and go to work. Come on. Merrily we go to hell, Andy. This movie, I know this is part of our journalist series that we're doing now, but you might uh, mistake it for a movie about addiction and alcoholism. Really, it's about journalists. (laughs) <laughs> is that what you got about uh, out of it that, that was my note it's like <laughs> journalists are great there's a reason that we are doing a series about journalists this is a movie neither of us had seen you know <laughs> it's like saying that uh jacob's ladder fits into our our christmas movies <laughs> exactly it's like yes there's a journalist like. in it <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would say generously, uh, this movie is journalist adjacent. <laughs> he's not even. We do see him in the actually, press room. 
We do, but he's not actually a journalist. He's like an opinion columnist, right? He's a he's a clever wordsmith, right? Isn't he just more of an editorial editorialist? He doesn't actually <laughs> write stories. He doesn't seem to be tracking anything down. Yeah, that's for sure. No, no, there's no sort of uh, journalistic gumshoe at play in this movie. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he's just, a playwright too. He's, he's trying. He's like that's his yeah. side. Like it almost seems like he's a journalist um, accidentally because his focus uh-huh. seems to be. I really want to be a playwright, and like even when he's at work, he doesn't seem to be focusing on his work. That's right. Um, we so we put this movie in because we we wanted to add a little bit of texture to our journalist series, I guess. And as you said, we hadn't seen it. I'm glad I have now seen it. And I wonder if you could tell me, Andy, what I thought of this movie. I think that you genuinely enjoyed this film, despite the surprise that it likely wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Fascinating. Fascinating. How well you think you know me. I think uh, I think you probably really liked it because you like to get down in the pre-haze code like slop and really roll around in it. Wow. You like to just get all up in there. You're going to I think you're going to say how excited you are that they actually use the word hell in the title because there were many years where they couldn't do that. And I think you're going to say, look at all the booze that he drank and infidelity. And there's on screen infidelity, like straight up partner watching other partner kiss another person. Wow. I think you're going to really like that stuff. I think that's all about you. That's what I live for. Live for the filth and the muck. The filth and muck. That's mm-hmm. right. That's where I live. On the corner of Filth Street and Muck Avenue. <laughs> filth and muck. <laughs> uh, this film, uh, no, it came out before ratings. This was non-rated. But there's definitely a lot of alcohol, drinking, and infidelity, as you said. And H-E double hockey sticks in the title. Let's, let's remember. Oh, you're cleaning it up already. Very racy. At the time of release. Outstanding. Some places wouldn't even publish the name of the movie in the paper. Want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in our show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to their site. You can rent or buy the movie, and we get a little tiny piece in return. Win-win. We have got some merch. Uh, I, I don't know what we're going to do for Merrily We Go to Hell. I don't know what, <laughs> what the image is that properly goes with this movie. I think it's um, two people sitting in a roller coaster, and it's going down, but it never comes back uh-huh. up. But they're smiling, and it just plummets directly into hell like we see into you know, a fiery little, little fiery, fiery blaze little red at the bottom Satan down at the bottom dancing right. and they're like Whee! everybody will love to to wear that that is something that i think people are going to really dig no it fits the times on their it chest. fits the times it sure does head over to truestory.fm slash tnr merch and uh, you can put st- our stuff on shirts and stickers and mugs and masks and pillows and more with everything we're coming up with get it while you can do you ever listen to the show and say i wish i could get my two cents in there well you can actually if you watch the movie send us a 30 second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie we just might end up showcasing your voice on the show we do record about two weeks before the episode drops so just make sure you get them to us ahead of time and you know we will hold on to it until the show so it's 
you know, we definitely want you to get it in early. Oh, we've got, yeah, we've got reviews for months from now. Months from now in the queue. Yes, we do. That's right. Yeah. So just send them over to reviews at truestory.fm. Are you, do you wonder how you could possibly see what movies we're going to talk about in coming weeks? Well, we do too. Uh, except for we actually have a key to unlock the door to the answer to that very question. You just need to head over to letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And uh, you'll be able to see our Letterboxd HQ page. And there we have lists of all of our watch lists. We have lists of all the other movies that we talked about on the show and our series. And it's all very, very exciting. And all you have to do is take a look at that watch list uh, for this current season. And you'll see all the rest of the movies that we're talking about through the summer. And, you know, I bet that you had on your New Year's resolutions list, I need to support my favorite podcast, The Next Reel. And how do you do that? You join us on our uh, membership platform. It's it's not Patreon, but it's Patreon adjacent. It's their other platform called Memberful. It's built right into our very own website. Now's the time. Uh, it's, it's the New Year's resolution. You just got to uh, go over to the site and you can join at a month-to-month rate or at an annual rate. And you get all sorts of goodies. Members get early access to every episode. They also get so many bonus episodes, including our retake episode, where we summarize and discuss the entirety of a series that we've been talking about on the show. We also do our flick chart re-rankings, in which you'll discover just how much of a cheater Andy is. All of those bonus episodes go to members and early. It's ridiculous. We're about to record even like right after this, our January member bonus episode, which is uh, an opportunity that we have to fill in gaps from past series. And this is going to be one we're jumping back to our James Wong Howe black and white cinematography series. And we're going to be talking about Mr. Blanding's Built His Dream House. So that's another exciting um, episode that members get. So uh, another reason for you to jump on the bandwagon and sign up for that membership. Head over to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about our membership tiers. The most it will cost you is five bucks a month. Or $55 a year. When you watched Merrily We Go to Hell, did you think, when is the comedy going to happen? It's funny, I, I did, and I think it's because of the title, but I don't know, I don't know if I uh, ever really knew what what the film whether it was a comedy or not i just assume that from the title merrily we go to hell it sounds like it's going to be a comedy and uh, so maybe it's just my misreading it but it's definitely not something that uh, is designed for a lot of laughs no it's not and i am right with you there's something about the title merrily we go to hell that seems so stupid funny like it's supposed to be funny and so i feel like that was a little bit of um uh, you know, root beer in my lemonade that I was ready for a, a romp, <laughs> 1930s romp, and I got something very different. I got essentially a star is born, and um, and and I expected something much lighter. This is not a funny comedy, uh, is is all I'm saying. But we do get a, a hefty dose of pre code fun. Do you want to talk about your favorite thing, the Hayes Code? Oh, the Hayes Code. You gotta love these films that came out in this period before the Hayes Code really started, uh, kind of, um, kind of kicking in and enforcing a lot of policies and rules. This was like in the around 1934, the Hayes Code. I mean, it actually started 
a few years before in about 1930, but it really didn't start getting enforced until 34. And it's because, you know, people had complained about some of the stuff that was showing up in films. There was a lot of uh, sexual innuendo, um, interracial relationships, profanity, drug use, prostitution, promiscuity, infidelity, abortion, violence, homosexuality, all of this stuff that had been going on. And a lot of people uh, found that it was, you know, it was a little too much. There was the, uh, was it the Catholic Legion of Decency that was out there and some other uh you know, places that just felt enough is enough. Hollywood is just a sin factory and we need to police it. And so, yeah, so the Hayes Code, um, it, it kicked in. It didn't really start um, working until, you know, films like this were pushing its their limits and people just said, no, we got to we got to stop. And that's what really pushed it to become much more strictly enforced a few years after this. And uh, to the point where, like, you know, having hell in the title wasn't even something that you were allowed to do. And so, and this is something like in the 30s, uh, Warner Brothers crime films, it was totally fine to have the crime uh, the criminal doing all sorts of stuff as long as he got it in the end. And it you learned the lesson that crime doesn't pay. That's really what was going on with this. And so um, when you have a film like this that that really kind of revels in the the booze and the infidelity and kind of this new modern marriage and everything that you have this relationship doing, which is so interesting to kind of see what they're doing here um, as both husband and wife essentially end up kind of uh, having – uh, affairs that the others that the other know about it it really um, just shook things up and and just people weren't ready for it and so it's nice going back to these pre-code films to just recognize that you know there was a time that Hollywood was allowed to be you know a little more uh, kind of broad in the types of stories it was telling and you certainly get that with this film you you start to think like if you watch too many of these like just slightly postcode films, you start to think, oh, as a snapshot of history, clearly people were much more pure back in the day, right? I mean, clearly they just had more fun and it was much more just sort of light and relationships lasted longer and nobody had thought. I mean, when she turns around, Sylvia Sidney, and says, if we're going to have a modern marriage and you want to, you know, having a modern marriage means that, you know, being a modern husband means you have certain privileges. Well, I'm going to take advantage of the privileges of being a modern wife. And she's saying to him, I'm going to start having the affairs that you're having <laughs> right alongside you. And we're going to stay married because I want to be married to you, but I'm, I am going to go see other people. I thought that was incredibly powerful, that scene, because it, it recognizes the sort of history of humanity of troubled marriages and where these sorts of troubled marriages will take you. And I think that the, uh, you know, the story is such a, it, it, it's loaded with all of these things that make the challenges of relationships real uh, to me in a way that movies that came after it sometimes don't. I, I think that there's, there's something there. It's, it's, it is a very interesting depiction of a marriage also in a way that, you know, I think so often you have this idea of infidelity in a film and the husband's unfaithful and the wife's upset at him, but it's just like, you know, it's a man's world. 
sorry, sorry, babe, that sort of thing. But, you know, if the yeah. woman is unfaithful, it's like, oh, the world's coming to an end and, and, you know, the, you know, we're getting divorced and everything's over. And this film didn't do that. It, it allows, it allows both of them to kind of be equally unfaithful, you know? And so to that end, I found it to be kind of refreshing in the sense that this is a story that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's acknowledging that, you know, in a marriage that they are kind of equals. And I thought that was really interesting. And I don't know if that's because we're looking at a Dorothy Arzner film um, or if it came from the book or what, but I found it to be just a fascinating uh, way to kind of approach this story. Well, I mean, you you bring up Dorothy Arzner. We got to take about talk about Dorothy Arzner. What a fascinating human being Dorothy Arzner was. Absolutely. I, I look at her and I think this is a woman who was born out of time. Do you know what I mean? Like, like she was pushing some boundaries, not just in, uh, you know, in her filmmaking, but in her identity uh, that felt very much like she would be right at home right now uh, in in just our sort of media culture and and identity culture. Uh, I, it was just fascinating learning about her. Have you seen, uh, you know, other Dorothy Arzner films? No, um, I, you know, I I thought I had seen. I'm blanking on the name, uh, but what the film that she did with uh, Catherine uh, Hepburn, Christopher Strong, but I don't think I had actually um, seen that one. And so, but like that, the Bride Wore Red, Dance Girl Dance, like those are some of the uh, most notable films that she had done. But I mean, she'd been around all through the silent era, mostly as an editor before she really moved into directing, and. And then just directed all sorts of, you know, interesting projects um, before kind of uh, retiring from the business in the early 40s because it just, it was, I don't know, not really, uh, I don't know if she just couldn't click, like they weren't clicking or something, you know, it just, it didn't seem to work out. And I know she ended up teaching for quite a long time afterward, but um, yeah, I I just, I really felt as I watched this that she was a, a, strong filmmaker telling interesting stories and um i yeah I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about her but it's definitely somebody that i was like i, I need to look at more of the work that she's done yeah i i think so too this is this is one i would be open to um to doing a, a little bit more of an extended series on just because of her import i mean she was the only woman working in uh, you know directing in hollywood at the time and you know you can you can see where she is is pushing those sensibilities in in this one i would love to see some of these other sort of more important uh films she did end up teaching at ucla there's a building named after her there like i i feel late to the game uh, uh around uh, Dorothy Arzner and her work, um, and it feels like she needs to be better represented in our catalog. That's my take. Well, and it, you know, it's it's frustrating because she is one of those filmmakers that you know she was involved in you know a, several dozen projects, and it's hard to track a lot of them down. And that's you know that's the that's the thing that I think is most frustrating is that trying to actually do a further exploration of her stuff doesn't give you um, many projects to actually jump back in and look at unless you can track down like film prints and stuff, you know? I mean, it doesn't have to be all of them, Andy. I mean, we don't have to to actually work, work too hard on it. Like just a little bit, (laughs) just a, just a dash. Uh, Okay. So let's talk about the, uh, about the story. Uh, We've got uh, our, our uh, hero, our journalist, Jerry and Joan, uh, Jerry, Jerry Corbett. And uh, and we should say, I, Jerry, take the Joan by Cleo Lucas. That's the uh, story that this was based on. What a, I just have to say, 
in the context of titles, like I, Jerry, Take Thee, Joan is just like so weirdly bland and like, huh, I don't know if I'd ever be able to figure out what that movie was about. Yeah. Um, I think Merrily We Go to Hell, while it may imply a little bit more of a comedy, it's a, such a more fun title. It's a much more fun title. And, and at least you know where you're going. No. Yeah. <laughs> Straight <laughs> to hell. Take the job. Plus, there are way too many commas in it. I think yeah. titles with too many commas are <laughs> problematic. <laughs> oh, how about this for a title when they when they released this in the UK? Since they couldn't put hell in the title, it was merely we go to blank. It was just an underline uh, section. <laughs> are you kidding me? No. <laughs> merely we go to it's blank. Like- it's like movie title Mad Libs. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> I need a destination. <laughs> Apparently we go to Yonkers. Uh, okay. Well, Jerry Corbett is this uh, uh, Chicago reporter, and he meets young heiress Joan Prentice, Prentice who is 18 years uh, his junior. Actually, I should say that's never talked about in the movie. But Sylvia Sidney was 18 years younger than Frederick March. Yeah, it's uh, like that's that and, doesn't play uh, into the story at all. No, it doesn't play into the story. But uh, but so it is because she looks very young. And I think this was the third movie that they'd done together. Is that possible? Or am I thinking it's of possible. something different? I, maybe they hadn't done anything together. I'm thinking about our next movie. I'm getting all of our details confused. Uh, but Sylvia <laughs> Sidney, Friedrich March, she uh, she's the young heiress, Joan Prentice. And we have this. Um, you know, the image that we create with Joan, she, she looks like a young sophisticate, right? And she's, she is able to handle this conversation on the rooftop, uh, at this, at this party, um, watching him drink. She has all the right language, all the right lines. And they, um, somehow she finds him intriguing, provocative, uh, attractive, dare I say. I don't know how, because he's kind of a sloppy, clumsy drunk, uh, but he does have some good lines. uh, Right. And she meets him, you didn't say, behind a wall of booze bottles that he's like emptied and (laughs) and set up around him like a little fortress. (laughs) And he's like flicking trash at her. Like, (laughs) where's where's the romance? I don't see the romance. Plus, he's a close talker. I don't know if you noticed this. He's always leaning in and talking real, real close. And uh, in the uh, post-COVID era, that seems like another code we need to respond to. Close talking is out. Thank God we went to widescreen. We can give characters a little bit more space. Uh, <laughs> I wonder so. if that's, that was specifically why too many uh, co-stars. Can we just have a little more space when we talk? Yeah, exactly. We need, to, we need 16 by 9 just <laughs> to give us a few inches. <laughs> you keep spitting in my face. Um, and so that's how they meet. But then, and this I think is the, is the, the character nuance she goes home and her and we see her her relationship with her dad is very much daddy daughter um she's living in this big mansion she's parading around and she gives him a kiss on the cheek and she says oh daddy daddy you know this i i met a man and he's going to come to my party this afternoon and she feels at this point much younger than she does at the big party that we just saw her at the night before. Um, she seems much more like, uh, you know, just a, a crushing teen uh, on this much older man. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't know necessarily that I have a point beyond that felt odd to me from her character. It felt like like Arzner is pushing at something in Joan. 
Well, I don't know, but it's funny that you that you mentioned that. Um, I you know I've been listening to. I don't know if you're uh, if you have tuned in at all to the um, uh, the Secret Histories of Hollywood podcast. Mm-hmm. They're uh, currently doing a fantastic uh, look at Cary Grant and kind of um, his story. Part of the story is following Barbara Hutton, who uh, in the kind of the twenties was very much i mean she she's the heir to the um woolworth fortune and and like her, oh. her dad is is uh mr woolworth and um so she was like an american debutante she was young she was rich and and she was called the poor little rich girl because she did all sorts of stuff that she was just completely naive to like she had this huge debutante ball in 1930 right when the Great Depression was going on and got so much bad press about like what kind of person does this, you know, like, and so she, she ended up getting married and having these terrible relationships with, with people who really were just marrying her for her money. Mm -hmm. And she was just incredibly naive. And eventually much later in her life, she will end up meeting Cary Grant and they will end up getting married. Uh, But it was, it was one of these, um, stories as i was listening to this like her her story was so interesting and she was this daughter of this big industrialist and as i was watching this film i'm like did they make um prentice here um joan prentice like almost kind of patterned after barbara hutton as as kind of this daughter of this this uh industrial tycoon you know we as you know as jerry and joan initially are talking and he finds out who she is he's like oh yeah i've heard of you before and he he brings her over to the side of the the balcony and they look out and he points to a giant prentice billboard that's flashing its neon lights at them in the dark and so yeah it's like yeah this is that name that was a great moment by the way it was (laughs) that was was an awesome moment it really was but i was like i can't help but think that there's a little bit of them kind of poking at this type of person who um, is just, you know, they're not really clued into everything else that's going on in the world at the time. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think they play with it as much as I thought they could have if that was the direction they were going. But I certainly read some of that. And absolutely, I think in 1932, when people would go to see this in the theater, they would probably think of people like Barbara Hutton as they were watching this character. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I and it so in that way, the the film feels culturally relevant, right? Because it's it's really telling a story, sort of a rip from the headlines uh, culture section story. And that, you know, I can I can see how that means something. And you could very well uh, translate that story to uh, who Paris Hilton, like this could be a Paris Hilton story. Didn't she make that movie? <laughs> yeah, I like this one better. The, what was that? The hottie and the naughty. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if people would. Yeah, man, <laughs> you nailed it. Um, I I wonder how how people at that time saw this movie and and if it made them say ew <laughs> like me to the Paris Hilton connection. That's interesting. So anyway, what did you what did you think of their relationship? Did you believe it as they start building into something more than just meeting at a party? It's one of those um, film relationships where there's not a lot of opportunity for us to really get a, a full sense of a relationship growing. We just kind of have to buy into the fact, it, like any romantic comedy or anything like that, that these two, they see each other and the sparks are there and they feel that connection. 
you know, regardless of whether we really have a chance to to buy into it or not. And so I, I feel like it, it really just kind of played into that. Like they see each other and kind of instantly have that connection. And we just have to go along with it because I, do, I didn't feel that it was necessarily there otherwise outside of that, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think it doesn't help in, in some cases the way the, the story was cut. Uh, and I'm, you know, to just make time pass. So, um, and I, I look at this one, you know, the comedy, sometimes the farcical uh, movies of this kind, I can truck with these relationships better because we're in a heightened sense of, of the comedy. In the drama, it can look like play acting. And the play acting is not, uh, it's not helped when you have these hard cuts to move through time. Like, for example, okay, he shows up at their big announcement party, right? They have the big announcement party that they're going to get married and he's passed out in the back of this car. And so his buddy comes up. He shows up late. Yeah, he's very late. Uh, His buddy comes in and says, oh, he's at home. And she runs down to the car knowing something's up. And there he is, passed out, dead, unconscious in the back of the car. We have, after that, she runs off and there's just a very brief scene. And then, goodness, hard cut to the wedding. I feel like there are examples of this kind of pacing that work against the movie. Like, it, I, I find I believe their relationship less because they don't give me any sort of development in, in the relationship. It makes everything feel less grounded, less real, and I struggle with it. I can't help but agree with you with elements like that, the way that the story is constructed. I like it. I like them as a couple. I think there is something kind of cute about the two of them together. But I I never get enough from her to really show so many reasons why she loves him when we generally see him as just a drunk who isn't getting much done. I mean, eventually he does. He is able to kind of write a play, sell a play, make a lot of money. But not right away. And so initially, I'm like, I just I'm I'm struggling seeing what she's attracted to with him because he isn't depicted as a guy who has that many uh, positive qualities because he's just drunk all the time. And I mean, is it that he's fun? You know, but I I just didn't get a sense of that. Or is it that he's famous? Like in that first scene, like they have, she's, she works hard to set up. Yeah, she knows his name from the paper. Yeah, she knows his name. Like he's already famous. Is she just straight up starstruck? And she's, uh, she's putting aside all of the negatives because she likes being with his name more than just him. Like, is there a case to be made for that? I struggle with it because it still feels empty. I don't think that case was made as thoroughly as it needs to be in the movie. And as such, uh, many of these structural issues I find jarring. And what was the ring thing? What was it that he was holding in his hand? Was that like a keychain? Do you know? So at the, in the wedding, he's forgotten his ring. Yeah, a corkscrew for it was a corkscrew. bottles. Yeah. Of course it was. Yeah, I couldn't make it out. I, you're uh, very astute. You must have a real connection to. <laughs> That's what I used at my uh, wedding. You know the the alcohol. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was very clever, and now that I know that, that's very clever. So it was a corkscrew. She, he forgot the wedding ring and happened to have a corkscrew, and so he put just the loop of the corkscrew on her finger and had her hold the the body of the corkscrew, so you couldn't tell, and. Again, played off in a a bit of a comedic moment. Um, And she just 
there, there were no repercussions for any of those things. Like we never got to see how she comes back. It was like, you know what? This is yet another data point in how terrible you are. And all of that leads to the scene I was talking about later when she says, I'm, we're going to have a modern marriage. I'm going to have an affair. Um, it makes that like as cool of a moment as it is in the movie. It's less impactful because I do, I still don't understand why she likes him. Even at that point, as their relationship is now falling apart, all I'm thinking is, yeah, go have some affairs. You deserve better. I guess, I mean, I completely agree with you. I guess for me, I just, I I saw what the story was doing as far as how they were telling it. I'm like, well, I'm going to have to go along with the fact that they, there's a connection there because we're not getting it in the film and I just have to buy into it. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things that I, I think I, I found myself forgiving more than you did um, in context of how the story unfolded. Because, I mean, it very quickly becomes, you know, as we find out, Jerry kind of has this this pining draw to this, the, I don't know, kind of a former girlfriend, maybe, but I also had the sense that I don't know. There was a period where I'm like, had he actually met her before? I, I, I think that they had, or, or like they had met, but they weren't necessarily dating. Uh, like I was a little unclear because he's got. You're her- talking about Adrian. You're Claire. talking about Claire. Yeah, they were. They did date, right? They were. She was his ex. Well, it's it. Yeah, but there was a period in the film where I'm like, had he dated, or was he just like, like you know, a some fan. some famous <laughs> person that he had met and they had kind of talked and he kind of created in his head this this sense that they had a thing. I don't know. But regardless, they end up together and uh, that's kind of the whole thing. Um, and and so, you know, I, I go along with this, but largely I think it was because I really did enjoy this whole idea of this, you know, this modern marriage that they have and, and just kind of like how interesting that was in um, kind of their push to do or her push to kind of be his equal in, in kind of collapsing their relationship to a certain extent. Um, it's, it's definitely an interesting story that I hadn't seen before. So I, I, I forgive it some of its faults in, in the relationship because I just found, I found them to be an interesting pair. Yeah. I, it's, it, you know, it makes me, we, we just did a show not long ago where we brought up or the roses and it, it sort of feels like, uh, obviously that was a much more, um, broad take on the race to destroy a relationship but it feels like there is a class of movies where you know both partners are uh you know are are working hard to take an equal share of the destruction and that this is an early example of that in film and the bold part is that it was directed by this woman who was you know took it as a sign of being unafraid to tell hard stories and i think Part of the reason I struggle with it is I found Frederick March's performance as the constant drunk lacking for me. I, I, I felt his alcoholic was a little bit thin. And once we get the into the thruple with Claire and Joan and Jerry, when Claire uh, is in the picture and they're playing kissing games and and uh, and Joan finally takes initiative and says, we're going to have. Uh, we're going to have a modern relationship. Uh, I really like Joan and I like Claire so much better than I like Jerry uh, that it's I I lose, I I think, patience with the movie. But all of this leads to the climate, to the very end of the film. And I am eager to hear your take on their um, rekindled relationship. Do do you buy the end of the movie? Well, it's a rekindled relationship. Um, 
there's a pregnancy or you you're kind of glossing over that Joan is actually pregnant and you know she's she's you know she's getting sick a lot and it turns out she's actually pregnant and that's part of the draw that that kind of leads to this uh, them coming back together as as she kind of you know runs off and he tries to be sober uh, Joan's father won't let them come together and you know uh, and and he comes to the hospital really to kind of find uh his baby his child because he's found out that she's had a baby he goes to the hospital the baby died and Joan is about to die and doesn't want to or and, and Joan's father who is perpetually the block at this point saying she doesn't want to see you but he goes in anyway and Joan had been asking to see him and um and yeah they 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 get together he confesses his um, renewed love for her and they kiss and come back together uh, it it felt very abrupt to me that's what i wrote in my notes i'm like well that was an abrupt ending <laughs> weirdly as i watched the ending i felt like this all of a sudden like is like the the haze code had come in and somehow found a way to put a put this ending on it or something it felt like I don't know. It just it felt a little. Um, we need, you know, he needs to repent, and they need to get back together. You know, it, it felt a little um, false to me. I guess I I've read some critiques of the, the that final scene. You know, after with the the last frame right there, cheek to cheek in bed, and you're absolutely right. The haze coat is rearing its head, and I struggle with it because they've spent so much time through the course of the movie defining for us how unreliable these two characters are in a relationship many of the of the reviews that i've read have referred to this final sequence as a redemption for these two characters that they finally come back together and figure it out after long this long arduous journey that they they now know how to be together and that their version of a modern relationship is actually something that that is that they can live with together and and that they will be true to one another and they've they've sown all their wild oats and now this is a sign that that through great pain uh and and great adversity comes hope i don't buy it for an instant right these people he's an alcoholic and i'm sure that that part of that influence is i'm looking at the movie with 2022 eyes but i can't help but see how just how dated that final that final redemption quote unquote is because he is an unreliable participant in this relationship she's fawning over this this guy he is an alcoholic there is no way it will it will work for them there's no sign that they've that they are the people that they need each other to be at this point but here's here's um a, a spin on what you're saying maybe that's what they're actually trying to say and even with the title merrily we go to hell it's this maybe reference this is that them in hell they're gonna they're gonna keep coming back together but they're never gonna be able to actually get over these things and they're gonna keep coming together because they are the 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 type of people who need each other, but also don't realize that they're always going to keep <laughs> kind of descending into, uh, you know, further and further uh, issues. And his alcoholism probably will rear its ugly head, head again. And and who knows? And it's just it's it's they're coming back together, but it's not necessarily uh, happily ever after. And so I think 
maybe that's why it is such a brief ending is that there's a little bit of element of that that these two you know it's not necessarily you know the you know best way for things to go yeah i i feel like the movie i i enjoyed what the movie represents i think more than my uh, experience with the movie uh but that doesn't mean I didn't necessarily like the movie. I found it entertaining and I found it, um, you know, I, I like your twist on the ending. I think I like that better maybe than mine. And, and that feels really believable to her, to, to the experience of Arsner as a filmmaker. Like if she's, she's pushing boundaries everywhere else, uh, it, it feels like giving us that little dose of, uh, that little tease of, of peace, knowing full well that the movie is set up for a punchline of, of grief is, is a good one. Yeah, there's something potentially interesting in that. Yeah. What else do you What else do you feel like we we missed? Anything else on your hot list? I, you know, I, I, I mean, we talked about Sylvia Sidney. We talked about Frederick March. I, I do think they both just have great, uh, well, especially Sylvia Sidney, just like great screen presence. Uh, just I found her to be a delight to watch on the screen. Definitely somebody that um, I haven't seen enough of. Like I, I think I've seen her in. Maybe a couple other things, but not a lot. She's she's one of those people that um, I mean she she was the grandma in Mars Attacks, so uh, and she was the um, the old lady in Beetlejuice. So she she kind of popped up in those late uh, Tim Burton films, which I think is kind of fun. Um, but one of those people that I, I would love to see just some more of because I, I did find her to be uh, just somebody that you could be drawn to quite easily. Um, Frederick March is definitely one of those actors that I, I think has a face and has a presence that I enjoy seeing on the screen. I don't know if I had as much a problem with him as the drunk on screen as you did, but I think for me, there was an element of wanting to see uh, maybe a little more from the character, you know, because it's funny and maybe it's just me comparing him with I mean, his portrayal of the drunk in A Star is Born, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, five years later, we see very much the same character. And part of me is like, I, 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 I guess maybe we've just watched too much of him as the drunk. And maybe I just want to see, I want to see him doing some other things too. Well, and, and I think, you know, the, the movies that I've seen him in since, you know, after this movie are movies with him in a much more sort of robust performance writ large and uh and so i struggle with this one just as it is earlier in his in his career he's a younger actor sort of yeah i think it's stuff like seven days in may where he's the president yeah. you know just you know that sort of character that i and the best years of, of our lives well i mean death of a salesman he did he did willie loman and death of a salesman in 1951 and it's an exemplary performance but of course that was you know 16 years later and uh he's as an older man, a more mature man, a more experienced man, and he, you know, Willie Loman is is not the notable drunk. It's a whole sort of different kind of of grief we're dealing with in that character. But that's that's what I think of. Uh, in addition, now to a star is born, um, that that I think uh, of with Frederick March is um, is that substance 
that I just don't feel like I have as much in this movie. There's like some of the big stuff that he's done, like uh, when he did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or when he did uh, Death Takes a Holiday. Like those are films that I have always heard of, but I still haven't watched. And so I think there are other Frederick March performances out there that I, I just need to catch. You know, I just need to stop watching him as the drunk and, and look at some of the yeah. other stuff that he's yeah. doing. Because obviously he can do a lot more. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, um, I I think that I, I think we also have to to point out that uh, we do get a a bit character, uh, a cameo, dare I say, yeah, more than a cameo of the good Cary Grant. It's not a cameo because he was um, not well known enough at this point, so you can't call yeah, it a cameo. Right. He's really just it's a, a cameo for character. me. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a very much character. a supporting character. Uh, Charlie Baxter, which is. Um, uh, kind of a fun uh, carry. It's a small Cary Grant role, but a fun one. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to see him in these early um, roles when he was still a, a studio guy, hoping to get more work um, and and those bigger breaks. But at this point, I mean, this is all in the first year that he was making movies and didn't really. Uh, get that break until you know probably about five or six years later and he was 34 years old in this movie like these were his his early parts and he was 34 years old and look at him 25 years later and he hasn't changed he has the brad pitt thing right he has the uh ant-man uh paul rudd thing i don't (laughs) think cary grant didn't actually age until he stopped acting when he <laughs> when he became maybe what um, Perry, you know, what um, Paul Rudd did is is actually like maybe there's a Cary Grant uh, you know serum connection. that some of these actors yeah. are taking you know it's a, it's something that they made with his blood that that these actors drink and it keeps them young right that's possible I just went down a weirdly dark and gross road well and what's weird about it if you look at Cary Grant later like in his in his post acting years like in the 70s the the stills of him it, he actually was Cary Grant for 60 years and then immediately became Frank Frank Sinatra like <laughs> he suddenly he, he suddenly quite suddenly he's Frank Sinatra I dare you <laughs> not to see Frank Sinatra on his wikipedia page I dare you anyway that's, that's funny very funny uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's I, I guess kind of uh, largely this film. I mean, it's I, I enjoyed it. I, I did enjoy the film. I didn't love it. I found it to be more kind of an interesting watch than than something that I would want to return to. But I enjoyed what they were doing. I enjoyed kind of um, some of the stuff they were saying, especially at this period in time. So yeah, me too. All right. Well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Michael Shines, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Uh, how to do it at the box office, Andrew? Oh, nineteen thirty-two, Pete. Best guess on whether any budget information is available for this movie or not. Oh, I'm sure you found all of it, and because it was in uh, Al Capone's <laughs> vault. 
That's right. That's a, I think that's where it still is. Um, there's not much out there, unfortunately. Here is what I could find. I could find nothing regarding the budget. Uh, the movie opened June 10th, 1932. This film was apparently one of the more financially successful films of the year. And that's all. That's it. There's just there's just oh nothing out God. there. I know. Very frustrating. Wow. Yeah. First, first movie uh, recording in 2022 really starts you off with a whiff. <laughs> well, you know, I've got to have a few of those. Sorry, sorry about no, that. Got to have some place to go from here. Hey, you know, it, that's right. It's only yeah. going to go up from here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, well, again, I liked it. Uh, I didn't love it. I'm like you. Um, I, I didn't get enough of your rolling around in the pre-haze code muck that I expected. Uh, that sort of fawning, that 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 really exceptional uh, muck banter, the muck banter. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm glad to see. I think we're I think we're in roughly the same place on this one. It's a fun film. It's definitely an interesting one to look at. And you know, I think the thing that I enjoy about it the most is that it introduced me to Dorothy Arsner. Me too. You're right. That's a huge win for this. A uh, middling movie. Great win for the director. I'm excited. It's good. We've done good. We've done good work here. We've done the Lord's work. All right. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Catherine Bigelow's The Weight of Water. Based on the number one best-selling novel. This is it. Two women were discovered in the kitchen. Strangled and bludgeoned with an axe. She came to the island to do a story. I think the killer was in love with one of the women. So it's an act of passion. About a murder that happened long ago. And I told my sister to run, but she said she was too tired. Using an axe requires intimacy. Think about how close you have to be to your victim. Now, secrets are surfacing. I was thinking about what keeps people together. So how did you two meet? Desires are stirring. When I told her to go and to look for help. Thomas! What? She said she could not. And the truth. How did he know the women would be alone? Isn't the only thing. What's going on? What's going on with you? To fear. Something's going to happen. From the director of K-19 Widowmaker and Strange Days. Academy Award nominee Sean Penn, Sarah Polly, Elizabeth Hurley, Catherine McCormick, and Josh Lucas. The Weight of Water. There are times in your life when you sense that something is about to happen. And at the same time, you realize it already has. Letterboxd, Pete. Letterboxd, Andy. How'd you, uh, how'd this one shake out on your Letterboxd review? Uh, you know, I still liked it. It's a very easy film to watch. It, it does have a lot of issues as you start kind of digging into it. Um, so, but I still find it to be uh, certainly an interesting film. So three stars and a heart is where I landed with this. <gasps> Andy, I'm exactly there. Three stars and a heart. Aww. That's what I did. Oh, I, I wonder if I think that's what I did. Like I did. Same Z's. Um, uh, very excited about that, uh, that we are same Z's. Yeah. Troublesome uh, in, in parts. Didn't like Frederick March, but there are some other people who really buoy the film. Yeah. And Cary Grant's white teeth. So white. So white. Yeah. They were as white as the collar on his tuxedo. <laughs> 
So what did you think about Merrily We Go to Hell? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we are going to be talking about this movie this week with all of you. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. You know, I there are a lot of reviews. Some of them are funny, some of them are very serious and long, but one uh, that I stuck with because it hinges on uh, Dorothy Arzner. And as you know, I'm now a fan of Dorothy Arzner. Uh, this is a three and a half star review by Ella from uh, early last year. No, two years ago, 2020. Oh, Andy, it's 2022. Ella says, Arzner has such an understanding of women tortured by their own nature. Nearly 90 years later, the characters that occupy her film still quietly burrow their way into your heart. I love that. And I think that's a a really great way to frame what Sidney is is doing in this movie with Prentice. Yeah, actually. Tortured by her own nature. That's actually uh, a great perspective on it. I like that yeah. quite a bit. And I think to a got? certain extent, it speaks to the end of the film, too. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. We can't get she can't get off the train because that's right. who she is. Yep. That's yeah. it. That's it right there. What do you got? Oh, I've got a three and a half by Ely, uh, who also gave it a heart and had this to say. Imagine your wife telling you she's bringing her side piece to a party and she sews up with Cary Grant. I would just <laughs> cut my losses at that point, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Done and done. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we are going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 11, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, our big 10th anniversary season featuring all female directors. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Horror debuts. I'm already stumped. Oh, wait, uh, The Lure. Wasn't that based on The Little Mermaid? It was. Nice. Very loosely, at least. Um, how about 10th anniversaries? Hmm. That's a tough one. So 2011 films. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Yep, that was it. Spike Lee's member bonus, another biopic. Malcolm X. Nice. We have covered a lot of great movies that started as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Awakenings, Wild at Heart, The Virgin Suicides. Queen of Katwe or Clueless. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. 
I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Thank you.